All right. Well, here we are. Day Ew. what of quarantine? <laughs> God, they all blend into one. I, I don't know what day it is. Tuesday. Tuesday. Although I should pretend like this is some other day for the podcast. I guess it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Um, well, hey, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Lunch Therapy. I'm your host, Adam Roberts, and I'm here today with my husband, Craig Johnson. Hello. And our guest today is um, one of the most famous and successful podcasters out there, Karina Longworth, who has the podcast, You Must, Rem- you Must Remember This, which is really a great listen if you're interested in Hollywood and great stories about everyone from old Hollywood movie stars all the way up through Madonna and up to Charles Manson and people like that. Um, She's also the author of the book Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom and Howard Hughes' Hollywood, which uh, recently came out, and you should check that out too. So we did our interview today over the phone, and she recorded her half on her microphone. Um, So that's why it's going to sound a little different than the ones I've been doing over FaceTime. But before we get to that, I thought I'd have my husband here, Craig, to talk about our time in quarantine. How's it going? I think that every day that our apartment doesn't resemble The Shining is a win. Oh, come on. It's not that bad. It's not that bad. Of course it's not that bad. Well, you cook, for God's sake. Yeah, you're you're in heaven. It's pretty great. In fact, people reach out. I mean, quarantine isn't great overall, but yeah. but it could be a lot worse because I do live with a home cook. And people reach out to me on social media and say they're very jealous of me and wish they were quarantined here. So here and also I am. we're very privileged. I mean, compared to people who are in situations. Oh where, my, I mean, yeah, of course we are. No, I'm just saying, like, I mean, like, it's not that hard to just be in our apartment. We're lucky for so many reasons. We're yeah. lucky um, to be here in California, actually, where I think there is a lot more space. You know, we lived nine years in New York, which is you just stacked on top of each other. You live in a beehive there, and obviously things are in such bad shape there. Um, but we're also lucky that that you know my heart goes out to my single friends. I think it can be really all the single ladies, all the single ladies. The single Thank ladies. God for Zoom. Thank <laughs> God for um, you know technology. At least we can communicate with each other now. And in terms of food, I mean, I've been I've probably been cooking more in this period than I have ever in my entire life because it's not just dinner, it's not just lunch. I'm making breakfast, it's everything. Too. I just made granola. I'm gonna make a salad for lunch. I'm gonna make something for dinner. Um, but my biggest project so far, which you've been so riveted by, has been sourdough bread. Well, yes, I I just have I loved your. You said this. I can't remember who you said this to, but you said about this quarantine that that you've been preparing all your life for this moment. Well, it's funny because, yeah, I mean, every, everything that I've been reading and every, you know, I, I watch PBS cooking shows every Saturday. I read, I thumb through cookbooks all the time. And what those, you know, those people who I admire the most in the food world do, it's not just about like dazzling people at a dinner party. It's about having like a food lifestyle where it's like you get up in the morning and you, you make the breakfast and maybe you start the dinner, you defrost the chicken. It's like a way of life that sometimes I kind of ignore to, to do my work or to get out of the house. But to be home and to sort of have the full food lifestyle where you're really just sort of going meal to meal and planning and sort of Making taking the leftovers from one meal and turning it into the next meal um, is sort of something I've been studying for a long time. It's true. You've yeah. truly been preparing for this moment your whole life, and it's and there is, there is in terms of creativity. I, I'm actually really enjoying it. Like you know, for example, I made sourdough bread yesterday, which was a whole project, and it was so rewarding because it was like I followed all these videos and all these instructions, and and I'd done it once before, like 
a long time ago. If you go in the archives of my blog, you'll see when I had my old roommate, Loren, and we lived in Atlanta, I made Nancy Silverton's recipe where I captured wild yeast using grapes and flour and water. And it was this whole process. But in this case, I was so lucky because we're, we're friends and neighbors with uh, Rachel Sheridan and Jeremy Fox, who are both big food world people, and they brought over their sourdough starter, and they brought over a pot to cook the bread in. So I was in good shape, and Craig was was hearing every step along the way. And I got to taste the results, which were very, very delicious. Yeah. So, I mean, you're using this time to watch movies. Well, I should be using this time to write and do work, and I'm doing a little bit of that. But, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to, like, let myself... Um, give myself permission to, all right, this is a weird time and I'm a big movie freak and I can jump back in. So I have been indulging in the Criterion channel, mm-hmm. which I have to really plug. It's just amazing. It's this, the Criterion collection is archive of classic movies and world cinema and kind of modern um, films, a lot of like bizarro art movies, but also like The Graduate, you know? And um, I, I've just, yeah, I've been. Watching a lot of movies, stuff I haven't seen in a long time. Ingmar Bergman, The Seventh Seal, I watched for the first time. Right. Well, if you follow Craig on Instagram at CSJ214, he writes little reviews of the movies and his stories, too. Yeah, maybe not so much reviews, but just little reactions to what I'm watching in quarantine. So what would you say for people who are home right now who want a suggestion from a film buff? for a movie to watch right now? Is there one that in particular that you think? Well, one that really struck me, it won't be everybody's flavor, is this 1950s Czech film called Invention for Destruction that is, unlike anything I've ever seen, it's this sort of Jules Verne adventure story that's half animation, half live action, that really feels like a storybook illustration come to life. Mm -hmm. It was made in the 1950s, and I was reading about it. I'd never heard of it. Um, And it was like the most popular film in Czechoslovakia for years. It was this huge, huge, huge hit. Uh, And it's this, it's just this exciting adventure done in this incredible style that feels like an animated uh, Jules Verne illustration. Now you should ask me like what recipe I would have people make in quarantine because I just asked you. I think you just asked yourself. I know, but ask me because it'll it'll be more natural if you ask it. What recipe? (laughs) I think everyone should make pickled onions, pickled red onions. I've been enjoying the pickled red onions on our migas that you made for oh, breakfast. Yeah. No, I've been putting them on everything, though. I put them in salads. I put them on beans. Yep. I put them in sandwiches. I put them in egg salad. So, Oh, yeah, the egg salad. And yeah. it's so easy. There's a recipe on bonappetit.com that I use, but actually I don't even use the recipe anymore. I literally just take uh, apple cider vinegar, I pour it into a bowl, I add a spoonful of sugar, a smaller spoonful of salt, I whisk that together, and then I slice a red onion. Oh, I'm sorry, and then you add water. So I add like equal parts vinegar and water, and then um, or a little less water if you want it punchier. And then you just slice a red onion and put it in that liquid, and that's it. And in one hour, you'll have pickled onions, but keep it in your fridge, and you'll have it all week. And I think it's made a huge difference, not just to our um, food, but also to our relationship. (laughs) I agree. You think we're holding up okay and just being together all the time? 
Yeah, I think so. I think I, you know, this is going to sound this is going to sound probably sentimental or whatever, whatever you want to call it. But we, I think we genuinely like each other. Uh, no, I think we do. I'm not sure. I think we like spending time with each other. So you drive me crazy. I drive you crazy. But we always and we also have a good barbed back and forth. That's and true. Are always kind of poking each other with little funny insults, but they're always kind of witty and clever. We, Sometimes they are. We keep it real. We keep it real. Yeah. All right. Well. Oh, I want to say just a little note. Um, your guest, Karina Longworth, uh, factored into into my life years ago because um, she was uh, started as a film critic. And she was a real significant one when I started filmmaking, which was around kind of the mid-2000s. Um, her writing was really uh, good. She was sort of a kind of a young Pauline Kael and she had this really cool kind of look, these like signature cat eye glasses and everyone knew who she was and people were kind of, you know, always filmmakers were curious what she'd think of their movies. And she reviewed my very first film at South by Southwest, my movie, True Adolescence. And, um, and she, she gave it a pretty good review. Uh, and I was so relieved. Um, and she was, I thought she was very fair. I don't think she thought the movie was perfect, but I remember that I got a, a generally positive review from Karina Longworth, and that meant something. Well, it started. That was your first movie of your whole career, so that was. was a big deal. It was. Yeah, and she's a little intimidating at first, because you know, she's so smart. I and mean, if you look at her Wikipedia, it actually like somebody. There's a quote about how you know uh, what's the quote? It's something about how smart she is. And so I was a little intimidated at first, but I think a freakishly smart. Uh, according to the New York Times. So, you know, she was an intimidating uh, patient, especially because we weren't face-to-face, which I'm realizing is sort of important, ultimately. I mean, when we're not in quarantine, it's good to just be in the same room with some somebody. So this was over the phone, but I was so happy to talk to her, and I think it's a great conversation. So here is my interview with Karina Longworth. Karina, thank you so much for coming on Lunch Therapy. Thanks for having me. So I've been a fan of yours for a while. I don't actually know a lot about your food life or your relationship to, <laughs> to food and cooking. I was just listening to your Marco Canora episode. Uh-huh. And it's so funny because my first job when I moved to New York was at Dina DeLuca too. Oh, really? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. That, I mean, I remember going in there when I first moved to New York and being, it was like going to Willy Wonka's factory or something. It was just full of, you know, prosciutto and cheeses and fresh fruits and things. But I guess now it's out of business, which is so sad. I know. Yeah. I mean, I actually had a weirdly similar story to Marco where I moved to New York to go to graduate school at NYU to study cinema studies. And I had, I moved there with like a thousand dollars in my bank account and Mm -hmm. I had to spend that money on finding an apartment. And that was, you know, pretty much all I, all the money I was going to have until I found a job. And so I, you know, basically checked into NYU, like went to registration and then just started walking around the city, you know, trying to figure out the landscape and trying to figure out a place to work. And I went into Dina DeLuca and I saw that they had a pasta counter next to the cheese counter. And I had learned how to make fresh pasta with my mom growing up and had always just been kind of obsessed with pasta. And so I I gave them a fake resume um, (laughs) saying (laughs) that I had like... Yeah, saying that I had ample cheese shop experience, which I did not have. And they hired me, and I worked there for my first year of graduate school, my first year living in New York at the cheese counter. That's so funny. Wow, I guess this is like a, a new like criteria for coming on my podcast. You have to have worked at Dean, Dean and DeLuca. Uh, well, Karina, I wanted to ask you, so usually the first 10 minutes we'll just chit-chat, but as a fan of um, your podcast, I was wondering... 
like if you could talk a little bit about the old Hollywood restaurants that existed, like the Brown Derby or those kinds of places. I mean, are those places that you've covered at all or have, that have come up in your in your research? Yeah, they, they come up every now and then, you know, because people went there or, you know, there was, you know, a famous meeting or whatever. One thing that was really interesting to me was um, learning about the guy um, James Wilkerson, who started the Hollywood Reporter, he also started a number of restaurants and nightclubs in Hollywood, and most famously the Trocadero. Okay, um, where like the point of these places was basically to get all of the stars who he was covering in the Hollywood Reporter to like be in the same place at night, mm-hmm. so that his waiters could eavesdrop on them, and then um, he could either collect information that he could either put in the paper or he could trade it. He could trade it with the stars and the studio moguls and stuff to withhold that information and, um, you know, basically like get another, a different story as an exclusive down the road. That's so funny. Um, it reminds me a little bit of this restaurant that's there now called Craig's. Have you ever gone to Craig's? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've been there once. Because it's like my parents, when they come to town, that's where they want to go because they want to see celebrities. But it's so odd uh-huh. because there are celebrities there. And I'm always like, why would a celebrity want to go to this place where they're being ogled. But I guess it's been like a time-honored tradition for celebrities to all gather and be see and be seen, you know, as part of their job, I suppose. I think it's really different now than it used to be, though. I mean, it was definitely like when you were a starlet under contract, you know, to MGM in 1939, it was definitely part of your job to be, you know, in full hair and makeup and go to a specific place at night to be photographed. And now the most powerful people can, you know, basically avoid that entirely. And and it's really interesting the ways in which the hotness of different places in Los Angeles ebbs and flows. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, at, at one point, you know, not that long ago, the Chateau Marmont was was the place that you would go um, if you were a very famous person. And now it seems like it that has moved to other locations to the extent that, like, I was there having dinner with some friends on a Sunday night, mm-hmm. and Jay-Z and Beyonce were there <laughs> sitting right behind us. Wow. And it was like they had gone there because they knew they weren't going to be bothered there. That's so funny. Well, it, it also seems like celebrities these days are, are really getting into cooking a lot, like Natalie Portman and... Um, What's her name from Little Women? Uh, totally blanking. Uh, she's doing a bunch of video. Um, nope, totally forgot. But it feels like there's like a new trend, it seems like, in celebrity culture to sort of show off like your baking at home. And I mean, I'm thinking of like even like John Favreau's cooking show with like Gwyneth Paltrow. And it just feels like it's shifted a little bit. Well, I think the John Favreau thing is a good example of how it, um, you know, I'm not judging anybody's intentions, but certainly like it's an ancillary stream of revenue at some point, right? you know, like you can, you can make a TV show, you know, it it can be another project that you're working on. And I think for a lot of, of actresses, you know, they, they have cookbooks and they have lifestyle brands. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good like exit strategy, I guess, if, if your career isn't going well. Well, I mean, Karina, I do want to learn more about you. We're not quite up to your lunch yet, but you were saying, so you worked at Dean and DeLuca and your mom uh, taught you how to make pasta, but was she a big cook in general? She was, um, you know, she was a subscriber to Bon Appetit magazine. And so I actually have every issue of Bon Appetit from uh, the first one she got, which was uh, an anniversary present from my dad for their first anniversary in 1980. Mm. 
Um, and I have every issue up until she died in 1991. Wow. Um, so yeah, she, she kind of like learned how to cook from Bon Appetit. Um, and then I learned how to cook from her Bon Appetit, Bon Appetit's. Do you have a favorite recipe recipe from those Bon Appetit's that she would make? Well, there's this very famous recipe in my family and amongst, um, people who like ever went to a Thanksgiving or a Christmas when my dad was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's for chocolate mousse pie, which mm. was in the December 1981 edition. Okay. And it's like, it's one of those things where I don't know if you're familiar with Bon Appetit from the eighties, but they used to do these sort of like cooking class articles where they would break things down and like very specific photographs mm-hmm. so that you knew that you were doing it right from step by step. Um, right. And this was one of those. And Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say it's yeah. a little bit like Jacques Pepin had a book called La Technique. And it sort of looks like yeah. that. It's like all the little squares of him slicing an onion or filleting a fish. Uh, but go on. I want to hear more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with this episode, it's or this episode, sorry. Um, <laughs> with this re- with this recipe, it's basically you make a crust out of melted butter and these crushed Nabisco dark chocolate wafer cookies, mm-hmm. and then you press it into like an old school springform pan, and then you make the chocolate mousse, which is just like you know tempered bittersweet chocolate eggs, I think heavy whipping cream, sugar, and then you like lay it all, lay the mousse in the the crust and you put it in the fridge for it to solidify. But then also in the recipe they had, um, you know, you garnish it with chocolate leaves where you like pull leaves out of your garden and and you you make like chocolate impressions of them with wax paper. So Uh basically this was like, my dad was, you know, he called himself a chocoholic and (laughs) this was his favorite thing. And so um, like my mom used to make it for him, you know, for every special occasion. And then my mom died and then my dad just basically took up the tradition of making it for Thanksgiving, Christmas, his own birthday (laughs) and so um you know I even as an adult like if I would throw Thanksgiving dinner my dad would come and he'd bring the chocolate mousse pie um and then he died in 2016 and so I have the the spring the spring form pan that he used to make it in and I've tried to make it once or twice and it's really tough really (laughs) okay like yeah it's I I haven't like perfected it and I think part of it is that I don't I'm not really a baker I cook dinner dinner and lunch and stuff but I don't I'm not really a baker and I'm like the idea of beating something even in a stand-up mixer until it reaches stiff peak phase mm-hmm. is is really elusive to me. So I haven't gotten that right. Well, when you when uh, coronavirus is over, you'll have to come over and we'll make it together because I love to bake. So that would be fun. <laughs> okay, great. Um, all right. Well, Karina, I think we're up to the moment now where I will ask you, what did you have for lunch today? So... Usually I, um, you know, even in in regular life, pre-coronavirus, I mostly work from home. And so I'm I'm usually making lunch for myself um, kind of based on whatever's in the fridge, you know, leftovers from the previous night or a recent night's dinner. Mm -hmm. So today, um, well, last night I, I made this recipe from the Zuni cookbook for salmon cooked with flagellet beans. um, And then the beans are cooked, like you basically, you, you, you boil a big pot of flagellet beans and then you put them in a skillet with like carrots, bacon, and red wine. And wow. then you put the salmon on top of the beans and you put everything under the broiler. Ooh, that sounds so, so good. It's really good. Yeah. And so I made it last night, but I made way too many beans. 
before the stage of, of putting it with the salmon and everything. So I just had a bunch of leftover flageolet beans like um, that I had kept in the fridge with their cooking liquid. Mm-hmm. And so I made kind of a quick soup out of that. Um, I added more carrots, some onion, um, what else? Uh, some more broth. And then I like went to the pantry and I was going to be virtuous and put like some bulgur or, you know, like a real nutritious grain in. Mm-hmm. And then I saw this lemon parsley linguine that I had ordered from Italy that I hadn't tried yet. And I was like, no, I have to use that. Oh, wow. So I like I broke up a few pieces of that and put that in there. And then I basically simmered it until the pasta was al dente. And then I added some kale and yeah. stirred it all together. And at the very end, I put in a scoop of this rosemary garlic spread that I had bought from the farmer's market weeks ago that is probably on its last legs, but it was still delicious. So if you had to describe, if you had to name, name this lunch, if you had to give it like an, a name on a menu, what would you call it? Um, probably I'd call it brothy beans and greens okay. with lemon pepper linguine. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, I need a title for this podcast episode. So that's that's what it's going to be. And I was going to ask yeah. you, so like immediately in terms of the psychology of all this, um, think, I'm interested in you saying that you're not interested or not as good at baking and you describing yourself making this lunch kind of lends credence to that because I've, I've seemed to like notice that bakers tend to be very fastidious and like to measure things and know exactly what it's going to be. But people who are more like, instinctual cooks like to grab a pinch of this and grab a bit of that and I'm curious if 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 that speaks to your personality at all oh yeah definitely um I'm not very good at following recipes mm-hmm. um and it seems like when I do follow a recipe I might make something the reason the whole reason to follow a recipe for me is that I would make something that I wouldn't be able to kind of invent on my own mm-hmm. but it often just it, it there's always like kind of a five percent disappointment for me mm-hmm. every time I make a recipe because it's does it's not as exciting as kind of the promise of the recipe even if it turns out you know almost perfectly whereas if I just kind of pick something from the pantry a few things from the fridge something from the freezer and invent something that feels a little bit more satisfying hmm. well I'm, I'm also curious about your uh, job and in terms of you know in the past you you've worked as a critic. And the free and the freedom that you feel in cooking, like I, I'm curious if you're able to. Are you self critical? Are you are you kind to yourself when you cook? I mean, how, how do you evaluate what you make? Um. Yeah, I think I'm pretty self critical in everything I do. So okay. yeah, I'm, I'm definitely like, um, you know, like last night I felt like the salmon was like 30 seconds overcooked. Mm-hmm. Um. And so then it's just like, wow, like you, that feels like a missed opportunity to make things perfect, you know? Mm-hmm. Is perfection, are you, would you call yourself a, a perfectionist? Um, not in the sense that I am fastidious, as you were saying. Um, but I do feel like if you don't do something as well as you can do, then it feels like a missed opportunity. Oh, that's interesting. And it, like, I'm not really, I'm not really interested in doing anything and being mediocre at it. Right. So it's more about almost like the ethics of not like wasting your potential in a way or not ethics, but just like there's something if it feels wrong to you not to fulfill your your potential, I guess, in any capacity. Does that make sense? I think it's just that I think it's just that I'm very competitive and maybe mm-hmm. not just like I, you could say I'm very competitive even with myself, but I'm basically 
entirely competitive with myself. (laughs) I don't really feel that competitive with other people. I just feel like I always have to do things extremely well. So how do you otherwise I'm annoyed with myself. How do you handle it if you make something that that you you're happy with and that you think has come out well and then you present it to somebody to eat and they have negative feedback? Does that get to you or are you able to hold on to your own evaluation of your own work? I mean, it depends on the feedback and it depends on the situation, you know, but I think that unless it's like a real disaster, I think that I would take it as a learning experience Mm -hmm. to be like, oh, you know, next time I'll do this in a different way. And then that gets me excited about doing it again and doing it in that different way. Well, maybe this is a good opportunity to sort of like pull back a little bit and learn a little bit more about you. Um, You mentioned your parents, but where did you grow up? I grew up in LA in Studio City. Okay. So you grew up here in California. And what kind of childhood did you have in terms of the food that you ate? Well, um, I grew up in the 80s and my dad was a, you know, a corporate accountant. And so he, um, in the 80s, you know, it was, uh, he basically would leave the house at seven in the morning and be gone until eight o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and he wasn't, until my mom died when I was 11, he wasn't really involved in child re- rearing at all. Like he would just basically show up, eat dinner, and that's all I would see of him. Um, but my mom was so like a full-time, you know, stay at home housekeeper, homemaker. Mm. And I think she started cooking kind of as a way to like fill the time. Um, you know, she was kind of on the cusp of these two generations, I think, where she'd had a very, um, stereotypical fifties childhood and her mother had, um, you know, kind of made her feel like she was a failure that she was still single when she was like 25, 26 mm-hmm. and she hadn't started a family yet. Um, and so she was, you know, 28 when I was born. And I think she felt like, I think she, she was, she was born in 1953. So she was of a generation where, you know, women her age were having careers and, and having markedly different lives than their mother had had. But mm-hmm. she was kind of caught between sort of having ambitions for that and sort of not. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, she she stayed home and she was a homemaker and she kind of threw herself into it. But she wasn't necessarily satisfied by it. Was she? Um, did she so there, I'm sorry. Did, did, did she enjoy um, was the cooking, though, like the making of pasta and stuff like that, something that that was part of her obligations of being a homemaker or was that something that she took to you just naturally or that she was interested in? I think she was looking for projects that took a lot of time mm-hmm. <laughs> so that, you know, there would be sort of less time in the day to fill up. That was, that was my impression. I didn't mean to interrupt though. You're, you're telling us more about your mother. Oh, I don't remember what I was going to say. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's funny. I should just say that the rhythm of this is a little. I, I wonder if there's like. Do you feel like there's a little delay in this, or is it? Or my, maybe it's just like a little like half second delay. But um, I think it's it's okay. We're, we're going to keep proceeding. So I want to know more okay. about. Um, so you said you grew up in the '80s. So were you a kid that like loved like '80s foods, like fruit roll ups and all that kind of stuff, or did you mostly eat wholesome homemade meals? I don't remember really eating that. Um, and I think that a lot of the stuff that other people ate was kind of kept from me and for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't ever remember eating sugary cereals until I was a teenager. Um, 
very minimal fast food, but I just, I didn't really know that anything was weird because, um, I didn't, I didn't go to school and I never went to preschool or anything. I didn't basically didn't meet people my own age until kindergarten. Okay. And so, um, I just, yeah, I I didn't really know what other people were eating until I started going to school. And then, but you know, my lunches were always just like, it was always just like a sandwich, a bag of carrots and an apple. So when your, when your mom died, when you said you were 11 years old, Yeah. And were were you an only child? No, I had a sister who's seven years younger than me. Oh, wow. Okay. So she was four. So did you take over? I mean, were you cooking at all? Like as, as you got older for the household or, or. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because my dad kind of like, he, um, he stopped working for, I don't know, nine months to a year when my mom died, um, to just kind of like regroup. But then Mm -hmm. he went back to work and he was a single dad, um, and so basically, I, I mean, I remember like even at as young as 11, like he and I would plan the meals for the week together okay. and we'd just like, we'd go grocery shopping on Saturdays and get everything for the week. And then we would figure out how we were going to divide the labor, you mm. know? So it'd be like, you know, when you get home from school at three o'clock, Karina, you take such and such out of the freezer and then you do this with it. And then when I get home at seven 30, I'll finish the dinner. So do you still carry any of that with you in terms of how you think about meals and prepping for meals like do you do you kind of make a schedule do you think about defrosting in the same way or or is it more about pleasure now I wasn't thinking that way for most of my adult life until the past three weeks All right, <laughs> where, right. Yeah. Um, where, you know, cause I had gotten into the habit of especially living in New York of like, Oh, I'll just pick up something on the way home and then I'll figure out what to do with it. You know, I'll like, I'll swing by McCall's and I'll get a couple of pieces of salmon and then, you know, whatever. Right. And now that we're, you know, under a lockdown, um, we're trying not to go to grocery stores more than once a week. Um, and if that even, you know, and we're also making do with stuff that we can sort of get brought in. Um, and luckily I had filled the pantry pretty well, the pantry and the freezer. So really the only things that we're kind of bringing in on a regular basis are fresh vegetables. And we just basically wait until the fridge is, is empty. (laughs) And then, and then I figure out, you know, what can I use over the next week? Like if I get like, this much kale, this much broccoli, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. How can I get like five or six meals out of these things? Have you thought about signing up for a CSA? I have, yeah. I have a couple of friends that have done different options for that. Um, I just haven't quite figured it out yet. I heard that the bagel store in Silver Lake Maury's is yeah. doing one. Oh, cool. And that you can add bagels onto it. Um, nice. so that, I think that's the one that I might, I might try to get in on. Well, I'm Jewish. So I, I think of a bagel as a vegetable personally. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, I just signed yeah. up for one called farm fresh to you, which will start on April 15th. They'll start delivering and, uh, and apparently you can like make your own box and choose which vegetables you want. So it seems kind of cool. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, well, that's interesting. you you feel like right now is more of about, it was more similar to your childhood, but I'm, I'm curious about the evolution from. Um, growing up, you know, having lost your mother, being with your dad, being with your sister, and then sort of entering the adult world and then cooking for yourself. When did that really start to happen? Um, I always cooked for for myself. I mean, even when I went to college at 18 and I lived in a dorm, I would cook for myself because it was just the most cost effective way of doing things. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to, I went to art school, so we didn't have like meal plans or cafeterias or anything. Um, so, yeah, and then I would definitely, you know, I, 
I was living on a really, really limited budget in college. And I was trying, I think I was spending like $35 a week on groceries and just like trying to get almost all of my meals out of that. Wow. So that there was def- there's definitely a lot of, of, um, you know, if I buy this one box of pasta, how do I make that last for five nights? Mm. And, w- and are there specific dishes like from your childhood and from these periods that you're talking about that you remember explicitly? I was always, I've always been good at just kind of like, um, you know, throwing together something as a soup, you know, using kind of everything, everything in a fridge and turning it into a soup. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, you know, I can basically make like a pasta dish out of anything. And um, my, like my dad um, definitely was somebody who was like, you just kind of take whatever's left over and then you make an egg. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's always been in my repertoire too. Um, or I think, I mean, even before people started eating avocado toast, like I, I was always really happy just like having some decent bread and making toast and then like finding something to put on the toast. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like you're always a very like, what's the word? Like resourceful, practical cook, right? I mean, it's just, you're able to use what was around you and make something good, which is what you did today for lunch. But I'm also curious, like, have you gone through phases in your life of, like, trying Indian cooking for the first time? Or I don't, have you, like, explored other cuisines? Have you gotten into cookbooks or that kind of stuff? I mean, I know some sort of basic ways to, you know, kind of mimic things like Indian food or Mexican food or Chinese food just through flavor combinations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I haven't really studied any cuisines. Um, I, I do love cookbooks. As I said, I'm like, I find it not that satisfying to follow a recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but my husband, my husband's really good at following a recipe. And so um, I think like we, we bring a lot of cookbooks into the house and I think I'm always hoping that he'll cook from them mm-hmm. <laughs> because it, it's also just like really nice for somebody to cook for you when you're the person used to cooking all the time. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, I guess one thing I did is um, when I was like in my late 20s living in, uh, in New York by myself, I got, um, I think it was a gift, but I can't remember who gave it to me. I got the Chez Panisse Vegetables book. Okay. And I basically like cooked my way through it, only skipping vegetables that I didn't like or um, like, you know, maybe there were like three recipes where I just couldn't get the things that I needed, but I cooked most of those recipes. Wow. And did you learn a lot doing that? I did because I didn't really eat vegetables growing up. My dad was such a meat and potatoes guy that Mm -hmm. I didn't really learn how to cook most vegetables. So it was really, really useful for me. That's really cool. It's it's a sort of... I. Long time ago, I got to interview uh, Samin Nostrat, and she had a jo- mm-hmm. she got a job at Chez Panisse. And in order to work there, you had to cook your way through um, all these like famous French cookbooks. So it's sort of like part of that tradition that you you know what you did was sort of in the spirit <laughs> of that. Uh, well, I'm curious. Like, I, I kind of like want to think a little bit about your your love for movies because was that always part of the story to you? That you, I mean, through all of this, were you watching movies and loving old Hollywood or did that emerge later or where did that come from? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was, that's always been part of my life. Um, That was just something where I didn't, you know, much like not realizing that fruit roll-ups were a thing until I went to school for the first time when I was five. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't realize it was strange to be interested in the history of Hollywood until I left Los Angeles when I was 18. (laughs) it was just a you know completely normal part of my life. Both of my parents were interested in old movies. 
we always had them on in the house. Um, you know, we had like Lauren Bacall's autobiography on the shelf and Hitchcock Truffaut on the shelf. And, um, you know, yeah. And also just growing up in Los Angeles in the 80s and early 90s, uh, a lot of the stars, the big stars from like the 40s, 50s, 60s were still alive. Mm-hmm. And it just seemed like that culture was kind of, um, it wasn't, there wasn't so much distance, you know, and even on the local news, they would report on, you know, what Elizabeth Taylor did that day. Right. Yeah. Um, and also, I mean, uh, like in the Reagan administration, you know, they're like the, the news of the day was tied into Hollywood because, you know, even though you, it's kind of arguable, like how big of a movie star Reagan himself ever was like he and Nancy were absolutely like celebrity president and first lady and, and, change the idea of the way people saw politicians in that way. So did you have run-ins growing up in LA? Like, did you see any of the people that you later became obsessed with? I don't really remember that very well. My grandfather was an accountant and he had some notable clients and he was actually really good friends with Mike Farrell, who was on the TV show MASH. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't, I mean, that's as kind of famous as it got because my family wasn't in the industry at all. Right. You know, my I, my mom, you know, as I said, didn't work outside of the house. And my dad was a corporate accountant. Um, he, for a while, the Dodgers were a client of his firm, but he didn't have any Hollywood clients. So, so what were your gateway movies? Like, what were the first like old Hollywood movies that you truly loved and became, you know, I keep saying obsessed, but like, what were the ones that you remember as a little kid seeing and really enjoying? Well, the first movie that I saw that probably the first movie that was live action that I saw was The Wizard of Oz. And, right. and that was a really big deal. Um, uh, we didn't have cable until the late 80s and we didn't have a VCR until then. And so my um, my mom's father, who lived in Van Nuys, you know, pretty close to where we lived, he had a VCR. And so he I remember he taped the, the Wizard of Oz used to be on just like network TV around Thanksgiving every year. Mm-hmm. And he taped the broadcast in maybe 83, 84 so that I could go over to his house whenever I wanted to watch it. Okay. And so I, I have these like really vivid memories of watching the Wizard of Oz and just being kind of like left alone in a room to watch it. And I didn't know how to use the remote control or anything. Mm-hmm. So the, I would watch the commercials with it. Okay. And there was like the the Billy Crystal, I think Pepsi commercial where he's like, "You look fabulous." Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I like remember that as being part of the Wizard of Oz. That's so funny because I used to be obsessed with David Copperfield magic specials from the eighties, <laughs> and and I used to have this tape much much like that that had commercials. And I remember I remember like explicitly like Keebler Elf like fudge cookies were one of the things advertised on that special. So you saying that just like brought back a flood of memories and this is becoming my therapy session now. Um, <laughs> nice. well, well, I'm trying to, but, make, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think that like, I think something people don't remember or maybe never knew is that as late as like the early nineties, there were so many movies on TV all the time. And mm-hmm. it was, you know, I think it wasn't un- all that unusual for me to be living in a major city and we didn't have cable until like 87, 88. So I'm talking about movies just on like regular channels that you can get with an antenna. Mm-hmm. Um, and it like it was it was not like they were showing Star Wars 
10 times a day. You know, they were showing movies from the 30s, 40s, and 50s mostly. And so even just having the TV guide in the house, you know, you get bored and flip through the TV guide and like read about all these movies that were coming on. And, and Myrna Loy was always a clue in the crossword in the TV guide. (laughs) (laughs) So you, you'd kind of, I kind of got to know the names of of a lot of these stars, like through the TV guide. And then, you know, I would, I would like turn on a movie if it seemed like the description was that you know, exciting. So are there places now in LA? I mean, I'm, I'm immediately thinking of like Musso and Frank's, but like places that you like to go that like con- conjure up that feeling or bring, bring, bring you into that world a little bit. Well, I don't, I wouldn't say conjure up that feeling because I mean that like what I'm talking about is really specific to being six years old right. and like being left to my own devices in a living room with a TV guide and the TV. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I don't think I ever went to Musso and Frank until, until I was in my early twenties, but now I love it, you know, mm-hmm. but it would just, it wasn't really part of my life to go to places like that growing up. So it was, that actually is interesting. So you were sort of on the doorstep of the Hollywood fantasy world that you were kind of getting drawn into, but you weren't yet like in that world. It was just, it's, it seemed, at least from the way I'm understanding it, that it was still far away for you. Yeah. I mean, as I said, I didn't know anybody in the industry. My family wasn't in the industry. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, there was a certain proximity in that it's just to live in Los Angeles, to have like the local news be what it was, to have the Los Angeles Times come to your house and have there be kind of a business of the industry section and the calendar section. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I, I knew more about Hollywood than most kids would who grew mm-hmm. up in other places. But, um, you know, I went to like maybe one or two sort of special screenings before I turned 18. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I was I wasn't that connected to it at all. Well, one of the things that's cool about your podcast, I mean, I love it for so many reasons, but one of the my favorite aspects of it is that you sort of dip into the tawdry world of, you know, Charles Manson and drug addiction and sex and stuff, you know, and I'm curious, like, were you interested in that stuff as a kid or did that kind of start to become more interesting to you later? Um... I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? I, I'm not sure I totally understand. Oh, yeah. Were you interested in, like, the darker side of Hollywood when you were growing up in L.A. or in, in California? Did you – were you interested in, you know, the Manson murders, the uh, some of the stuff you cover now on your podcast? Was that, was that still interesting to you? Well, I mean, the Manson murders, I think, is, like I've, – I've never been that interested in it. The only reason why I, I did anything on the podcast about it was because I had discovered – this connection between Manson and Doris Day. And mm-hmm. so I was kind of only interested in in that, like through this old Hollywood angle. Um, I think growing up, you know, my mom was obsessed with Natalie Wood. She really thought I looked like Natalie Wood. And she, you know, was really heartbroken by the way Natalie Wood had died. Um, mm-hmm. So I knew that. I knew about that story. Um, and, you know, I think that, the the period of of the 80s and the early 90s this is when a lot of movies were kind of coming out on home video for the first time mm-hmm. and so i remember there being kind of a big re-release of rebel without a cause and learning the story of james dean through that um and so yeah like basically the, i was interested in anything about old hollywood because i thought that that was 
just history, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? I mean, I just, I thought it was so normal to be interested in that stuff. I didn't realize it was a specialized thing at all. So yeah, I mean, <laughs> I I was interested in sort of like this, the scandals that I heard about, but I was interested in everything too, you know? I was also interested in in Gene Kelly and right. <laughs> I was interested in, in all of it. Well, I guess I'm thinking, I'm trying to draw the connection. It's kind of, you know, I feel like we have two subjects here. We have uh, food and we have Hollywood. And, I'm, and in my mind, I'm like trying to like connect the dots a little bit because I mean, you're, you know, I, I was really flattered that you agreed to come on this podcast and I didn't want to just, oh, ju- just like ask you, like, what did you have for lunch? Because I also wanted to bring in some of your stuff. But I mean, <laughs> I mean, and I asked you about restaurants and like Musso and Frank, but I guess I'm also like wondering now about, I mean, one of the things that I listened to on your podcast recently was about Mama Cass and about diet pills and like that whole thing of like having to lose weight. And I feel like you've covered that in other episodes too, but is that something that's come up in your research and in terms of like food and eating and and diet and Hollywood, like maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the stories you've covered. Um, Well, I think that the, the common thread that I've been attracted to is this feeling that, um, you know, bodies are commodities in Hollywood Mm -hmm. And that feels very real to me, even as somebody who's, you know, never really tried to be an actress, has never really um, tried to be a public figure, mm-hmm. at least like not for the way that I look. Um, but I feel like it, at this point in time, it's absolutely inescapable that there would be pressure to look a certain way um, mm-hmm. because we've kind of moved into this culture where no matter what you do for a living, you're expected to have a visual social media presence. Sure. Um, and so like, I, you know, because I feel that pressure, especially as I get older, um, especially as a woman, um, it's very, very easy for me to relate to, you know, the stories of, of somebody like Mama Cass who... Um, was absolutely an anomaly because she was, you know, maybe what we would now consider to be like a size 14 or 16, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and, and then also, you know, a lot of women who have what we would consider to be perfect bodies, but who are still under those kinds of pressures. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, I, it, I think those stories are... I always feel like if I feel an emotional connection to something, other people will too. Mm-hmm. If I feel fascinated by something, other people will too. Mm-hmm. And so everything I've covered on the podcast has been something where I am so either emotionally drawn to it or intellectually drawn to it that I feel like I have to share it. Right. Well, it makes me think a little bit. I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, not wanting to necessarily be in the public eye. Um and and yet, like, it feels like more recently, I mean, you're you're going to premieres now. I mean, like, it, it's interesting, like, thinking about your childhood and watching, you know, looking at the TV guide and watching old movies on the TV. And then now being in this life where you're, like, in the film industry. I mean, you're you're going out to all this stuff. I mean, how does it feel to, to be part of it now? It's nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that stuff you're talking about of like, I mean, if people don't know, my husband is a filmmaker. His name's Ryan Johnson. He was nominated for an Oscar this year. So, I mean, certainly like within the past 12 months, we've had a lot of that of, right. of having to go to events um, that neither of us had ever been to before. And, you know, having to you know, walk through the same spaces as people who are professionally good looking and who have entire teams kind of 
making sure that they, um, you know, only eat kale or whatever it is. And, <laughs> wow. and, uh, and like getting injections and, and, you know, basically like they're, they're the problem, <laughs> you know, right. they're the reason why we all have kind of unrealistic beauty and body images, um, in our heads that we're trying to live up to. And so, yeah, I mean, I just like, I, I feel kind of more, the more time I spend in those worlds, the more defiant I feel. And the more I'm like, you know what, it's absolutely fine that I'm a size six and not Mm -hmm. a size zero. Um, It's fine that I'm 40 and not 22. And and (laughs) I'm not going to take, you know, you know, do anything sort of unnatural to try to fool the world. Um, And, but, you know, at the same time, like if you have that attitude, then you have to accept that like you're, going to be so far away from the ideal when you walk into these rooms that you're going to be invisible. Are you able to Um, enjoy the, uh, I'm sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, just that, you know, like nobody's ever going to put me on a best dressed list. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I'm not going to get that kind of glory or whatever it is. Well, for my money, I'd much rather look at you. I mean, you, 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 (laughs) <laughs> you have a great look. I mean, it's like, I, I'm I'm so bored by like all the people who come off like the factory line and look exactly the same. It's like, that's not interesting to me. So I'm a fan. Well, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> but I'm curious, like, in ter- also just in terms of like the dazzle. I mean, are you dazzled by seeing movie stars? Like, do you get excited now or is it sort of not that exciting um, for you? I mean, it's stressful. It's Mm -hmm. definitely stressful to, you know, just have to have like a small talky sort of conversation with somebody like that because Mm -hmm. you just feel like you're bothering them. Right. Um, But I mean, I I mean, I get more excited when I don't have to interact with somebody like that. That time I was telling you about where I was having just like a kind of quiet dinner at the Chateau and Jay-Z and Beyonce were sitting behind us. I mean, Mm -hmm. it was definitely hard not to like swivel my head every now and then and take a look, you know, and, and certainly like I, I, I like kind of clocked what was on their table because you want to be able to like gossip about that, you know? Well, everyone listening to this podcast is going to want to know now what was on their table. (laughs) So first of all, when we sat down at our table, we saw that there was this table next to us that had a sign on it that said reserved. And there was a bottle of champagne on ice. And then like 15 minutes later, Jay-Z and Beyonce walk in and sit there (laughs) And, you know, the waitress, like, opens up the champagne and, and, like, pours some for them. And you kind of got the sense that they didn't order that champagne. It was just, like, either it's expected everywhere they go, like, there should be a champagne <laughs> just in case. Wow. Or there was, like, a gift from the restaurant. Uh-huh. But they immediately ordered martinis. Okay. Um, so, like, you know, it was – they didn't, you know – they weren't going to sit there and drink the entire magnum of champagne or whatever. So they had martinis and they had, it was fried chicken night on Sunday night at, at the Chateau. So they had fried chicken and French fries and then some kind of salad situation. That's all I saw. Wow. I'm going to have to like <laughs> a- analyze their meal by proxy through you. Um, well, that's, yeah. that's really interesting. So, so you get to do, so, I mean, do you, is this in terms of what you wanted growing up, I mean, what, what was the goal? Like, where, where did you want your career to go? And how does your current career match what you wanted for yourself? I don't think I really had an idea of a career for a really long time. I mm-hmm. mean, I went to art school in part because I figured out in high school that if you if you were going to tell people you're going to art school, like the college counselors and stuff wouldn't make you take the really hard math and science classes. <laughs> right. Um and so then, but then I get, you know, I went to the school of the art Institute of Chicago, which is, a, it is a fantastic, fantastic place. 
Um, and, you know, certainly every department that I took classes in, just the best instructors, um, and it was an incredible education, but they don't make you pick a major there, you know? So um, I was somebody who was ambitious in that, like I wanted to, you know, I just wanted to not have to worry about money anymore and have to worry about health insurance and stuff like that. And so I wanted to like have a career so I could stop worrying about those things, Mm -hmm. but I didn't necessarily, I wasn't driven towards a specific career. And so I studied a lot of different things at that school. And then I just kind of found myself um, almost making art about things I was watching. And what was the, uh, um, I'm sorry. No, oh, I was, was going to ask, what, what kind of art did you create that got you into that school? Was it painting? Was it sculpture? Or how did you how did you apply? I Well, I took a lot of different types of art classes in high school. Um, my portfolio was probably mostly photography. Okay. Um, photography and, and some painting. Um, but when I actually went into, into the college, um, you know, the I, the first couple of years I was there was really incredible, just learning so much about visual art and visual culture and history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was, I was really kind of drawn to nonfiction filmmaking and experimental video and, and basically being able to, um, to kind of have a point of view about the world that you lived in um, through, you know, moving imagery. Mm. So, um, I, you know, I was making these videos that were sort of personal diary videos about things I was watching. Mm-hmm. Um, and I finished school in 2003, and it was just kind of a weird time for that kind of work because I was using a lot of found footage, and it was kind of just at the point where the culture jamming stuff of the of the 90s had you know, it, it wasn't as free of a world as it had been. And so you could get in real trouble for, for doing things that had been considered fair use just a few years mm. earlier. Um, at the same time, it was pre-YouTube. So I just kind of got discouraged about the work I was making. And mm. I, I realized that um, the, what, the thing that I could isolate from that work was the writing. You know, I could still write about movies and TV shows and, and that kind of thing. And so that's when I decided to go to graduate school. Mm. Well, I mean, I'm curious, like you and your husband both clearly have a keen visual sense. And I'm wondering about your plating, how you guys both plate your food. (laughs) And if if one of you is more fastidious about how it looks than the other, or if if attention goes into that, or if it's not a big part of it. I don't think it's that big of a part of it. I mean, one, I I like having, I like owning plates and bowls and, and glasses and stuff that I think are beautiful. But in terms of how we actually plate our food, I mean, that bowl that I sent you a picture of my oh, luncheon, yeah. like I like to eat, I like to eat almost everything out of a bowl. Mm-hmm. And I think like the one sort of bone of contention between me and my husband is that he would prefer to eat everything off of a flat plate. <laughs> but I feel like it, like it, I feel like the food doesn't get, I feel like it gets cold too fast if it's on the flat plate. We're going to have to do couple, couples I, counseling with a bowl and a plate <laughs> and like, and role play and like have you eat off of a plate and him eat out of a bowl. And then also, like, a lot of the stuff that I like to eat is more kind of like a saucy vegetable or, like, with a protein. And so I just, like, you want to have, like, a round receptacle so that at the end you have, like, some sauce or some broth and you can, like, use the last of the chicken or the last of the bread or rice or whatever Mm -hmm. and just, like, get it in, you know, with the sauce or the broth. And you can't do that on a flat plate. That's true. Do Do you tend to, like, softer food? Um, yeah, I guess I probably do. 
Because I'm yeah, just thinking about like, like, saucy vegetables and soups. And I don't know, there's something about that that's like very like comforting and, you know, but like soft and something about, I don't know. I'm, there's something about that that I'm like, I'm thinking about as a lunch therapist, but. Um, yeah. I mean, I really cannot, you know, overestimate how much soup I eat. Um, like mm-hmm. I, I, for the past few months, I've been doing this thing where instead of eating like a solid breakfast, I, I make what I call green broth, okay, which is just basically like I, um, so I've, I've been making like homemade, like chicken stock, you know, since for 20 years, basically. Um, and I, so I always have some in my freezer. I, you know, make it fresh like once or once every week or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been doing this thing in the mornings and it's, it's something like, I mean, I, at other points in my life, I've also just basically had broth for breakfast, but I've really kind of gotten into a zone with it over the past few months where I do this thing where I take the broth that I've already made and I like boil it for a couple of minutes with some garlic, ginger, and whatever greens I have, spinach, usually spinach or kale, just like a handful. And then I put it in the Vitamix and then mm. it becomes basically like a hot green juice. And that's what I have in the mornings. That's really good um, for you, right? It's like so, paleo or something like that. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I'm not on any specific diet or anything, but right. it. I found that um, I found that it it just makes me feel a lot better throughout the day mm-hmm. if I'm kind of only eating one meal during the day. Um, and you know, I like I don't. Again, I'm not on like a keto or an intermittent fasting thing. Like I'm sh- sure I'm breaking all the rules <laughs> right. of anything like that. You know, but I just I like it does feel like it's good for my immune system. Um, it helps to wake me up and then I can sort of save coffee for later in the morning. Mm-hmm. If I have the green broth between eight and nine, then I don't really need to have coffee until like around between like 11 and 12. And then I'll eat lunch between one and two usually. So and is, is lunch also, I mean, you talked about your love for soup. Is, is there a lot of soup generally speaking? Cause I know that's what you had today. Certainly this time of year when it's not too hot out. Yeah. Um, so because curious. it's just so yeah. easy to tie tie lots of things together in a soup and are you and and ryan generally speaking like are both of you home beyond the coronavirus of it all i mean are you generally like both working from home when he's not shooting no he's usually not home during the day and even right now he has like an apartment around the corner from us okay in our neighborhood that he goes to to write great so he's still going there because there's really no you know safety reason not to Uh um and uh yeah so uh, usually I'm, I'm either during regular life. Um, I would say I'm home during the day, three to four days a week. And then, you know, the rest of the time, maybe I'm like out at a meeting or something, but like, I'm definitely under normal circumstances. I'm usually making lunch for myself three to four days a week. And then do you have dinner together usually? Yeah. 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 I mean, again, like in regular life, he often would have like a work dinner or, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of nighttime meetings several nights a week, but um, when he doesn't, yeah, we would either make dinner together or go out together. Oh, do you guys cook together in the, in the kitchen at the same time? Well, usually I do most of the cooking and then he just kind of sits there and like helps me out when I need help. That's really nice. I don't think I could tolerate my husband in the kitchen at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's funny cause I'm married to a director too. And so it's, it's funny, like the mm-hmm. kitchen, the kitchen is one of my main areas where it's like, I get to be in charge here 
and you know he he jokes that like he's not even allowed to like make a sandwich without my permission because I'm so fastidious <laughs> about everything. But I was I was curious. I mean, I I kind of brought this up earlier, but in terms of um, giving feedback to each other on each other's cooking, are you do you both tend to be gent- gentle with each other, or do you tend to tell it like it is, or how does that go? Um, I don't think that we were harsh with each other at all. Right. Um, there's just no point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. You know, I think that I can, even, I think he'll kind of always tell me that dinner that I cooked is good. Mm-hmm. And I can kind of tell through the nuance of tone of voice, like how good he actually thinks it is. Yeah. Um, and then if he makes something and he's asking me to taste it, usually it's because there's a question of like, should I do it a different way? You know, mm-hmm. he does a lot of like experiments and kitchen experiments and baking. Mm-hmm. So like the past few weeks, like the first week of, of quarantine, we were watching Shark Tank and we bought a pizza <laughs> oven that we saw on Shark Tank. Really? And you so bought it? it? Had, wow. Yeah, it had. Yeah. So now for the past three weeks there, you know, it's been like an issue of how do we make the perfect dough for what this pizza oven can do. Wow. And so there's been a lot of a lot of pizza experimentation. And so, you know, often I'm tasting things and being like, well, this is different from the last one like mm-hmm. this. And then he's also gotten into sourdough starter, oh, yeah. you know, like so many of us. And so there's there's been a lot of bread experimentation. There's been some cookies. Um, and, you know, I luckily, like, I think they all taste good. It's just a, like... Um, in terms of critique, it's like, well, the last one was doughier and this <laughs> one's crispier or whatever it is. Um, I just made my first loaf of sourdough bread this morning before we spoke and it was oh, good. How did it, turn out? it came out great. I, I'm lucky enough that I live near a uh, chef, Jeremy Fox, who um, mm-hmm. brought me a starter from this restaurant called Ronin, which like has this great starter. So I kind of cheated. Like they gave me the starter. And then, um, uh-huh. but it came out really good. So I think I'm going to keep making sourdough. Uh, but I was going to ask you, and we're almost out of time, but I do want to, I mean, I am curious, does um, Ryan have a favorite thing that you make? And do you have a favorite thing that he makes? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Um, he, you know, I don't know that he has a favorite thing. He, he's like, this is going to like, you know, sound whatever, but he does often say that his favorite restaurant in LA is meat cooking. Oh, that's very um, sweet. Certainly, like, the biggest hit recently has been Allison Roman's shallot pasta. Oh, I haven't done um, that yet. Was that really he, good? He, yeah, I mean, he was kind of blown away. The problem with it is that you really do have to cut a lot of shallots. Yeah. And so the next day, our whole house really smelled like onions. <laughs> right. And that's something that Instagram cannot convey to you. <laughs> um, it's also not that easy to get tomato paste right now. Luckily, we have a bunch in our pantry, but I haven't seen any in a store in a long time. I'm about to go to Gelson's myself after 10 days of no food shopping, so... I'm getting ready oh, to see, yeah, see what I find. Well, every uh, podcast begins with what did you have for lunch, but it ends with what are you having for dinner tonight? So I actually have to go myself because I'm defrosting a chicken, and okay. so I have to go check on it. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we're going to – so def- we're defrosting a whole chicken that we bought a long time ago. I'm going to cut it into pieces, and then I'm going to do the like a Sam Sifton uh, Provencal chicken recipe from the New York Times – 
and uh, our Gilson's day is tomorrow. So Uh, um, I'm going to try to like use up a bunch of um, vegetables that have just been sitting at the bottom of the fridge for a while. I have some Brussels sprouts and like tiny potatoes. Mm -hmm. So I'll probably just like cut them up and put them in a roasting pan like underneath the chicken. And just like salt and pepper and some butter, olive oil. That sounds great. Maybe not better. Um, one thing we haven't talked about is that I'm lactose intolerant. So, Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe that's why you don't like baking. Well, yeah, it's actually, it's, it's pretty difficult for um, me to feel good about a recipe that has a ton of butter in it. Right. Because I feel like every, every baking dish begins with like cream butter and sugar together or melt butter or yeah. They almost yeah. all have butter. Um, well, Karina, this was really delightful. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And um, Thank you. This was fun. Yeah. And uh, we'll hang in there with all this uh, social isolation <laughs> and hope to see you out in the world soon. Yeah, you too. Okay. Thank you. ACAST powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill, or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast. Hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast on the ACAST app or wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST, A-Cast. 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 recommends. <laughs>